Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Please welcome Ivy Pochita and Louisa Hall. I don't think that's true. <laughs> um, but so the book is written in five voices. There are five characters in different time periods who are involved in creating an artificially intelligent doll. And then there's also the voice of the doll. Um, in between each book, the doll gets to speak a little bit. So I'm going to start with a little bit of the voice of the doll. Um, and then I'll read a little bit from the voice of an inventor in the near future who has created the algorithm that pushes the dolls into the category of the living, or arguably the category of the living. Um, and then I'll read a little bit from a chapter um, by a character called Carl Detman, whose work is based on that of Joseph Weizenbaum, who created the first conversational computer program. So the first program that could kind of talk back to you. Um, and he ended up turning against it because he found it disturbing that people enjoyed talking to this conversational program so much. So I'll start a little bit with the doll. We are piled on top of each other. An arm rests over my shoulder. Something soft is pressed to my ankle. Through a gap in the slots on the side of the truck, my receptors follow one stripe of the outside world as it passes. From Houston, we continue west. I follow the rush. Bright green, brick red, flashes of turquoise. A few sleek cars purr past our truck, but the highway is mostly abandoned. Through the slots, I follow segments of signs proclaiming development entrances. Palm trees lining the drives, walls dividing subdevelopments. Then, abruptly, the last buildings slide out of sight, replaced by a stripe of pale, jagged horizon. We move past outcrops lined with dead cedars, white branches bare against the blue oil vault of the sky. At first, some clinging leaves, Spanish moss, suggestions of green, an occasional wandering goat. But now the cedars thin out. The highway cuts through striated rock, silver, rose, deep red, and gold. The hills give way to desert, interrupted by occasional mesas. Centuries ago, there were Indians here. These mesas supported the shapes of braves on their horses, headdresses cutting <laughs> silhouettes into the magnified blue of the sky. Now on the ridges, there are wind farms instead, descending hosts of spinning white turbines. In the valleys beneath them, silver lakes of silicone panels. Can they see us, I wonder, watching panels shift to follow us as we pass? Do they know who we are? The sideways tilt of their faces suggests an unspoken question. If they weren't out of earshot, I would start speaking. I could recount certain facts. For instance, we have been banned and marked for disposal. We are classified as excessively lifelike. Or, though this may not matter, I have a name. Your name is Eva, 
Do you know what that means? The solar panels stare back. All this was once ocean. If we scanned the cracked earth to the side of the road, we would find fossils of shells, not a lie and ammonites, creatures who lived in spiraling houses, adding rooms for each year of their lives. Now, in this desert, it is hard to imagine the presence of water, but in fact, the ocean is approaching again. In Texas alone, miles of coastland are lost every year. Families relocate to developments, developments relocate inland, and the ocean continues approaching. At some point, the desert will be flooded again. We have already driven some distance. Eight hours have passed since I was collected. My power is fading. Once it runs out, the memories I have saved will be silent. I will no longer have words to call up. There will be no reason to speak. Oh. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Did you guys hear any of that? Yeah. All right. Um, so now I'll read a little bit from the inventor who comes up with the algorithm for empathy. He's writing from prison. What's the world like? The world that I'm missing? Do stars still cluster in the bare branches of trees? Are my little bots still dead in the desert? Or, as I sometimes dream during endless lights out, have they escaped and gathered their forces? I see them when I can't fall asleep. Millions upon millions of beautiful babies, marching out of the desert, come to take vengeance for having been banished. It's a fantasy, of course. Those bots aren't coming back. They won't rescue me from this prison. This is my world now, ringed with barbed wire. Our walls are too high to see out, except for the spires that puncture the sky. Two sonic signs, one to the east and one to the west, and to the north, a bowling ball the size of a cow. These are our horizons. You'll forgive me if I feel the urge to reach out. I want you to forgive me. I realize this might be asking too much, after all we've been through together. I'm sorry your children suffered. I, too, saw the evidence at my trial. Those young people stuttering, stiffening, turning more robotic than the robots they loved and you chose to destroy. I'm not inhuman. I, too, have a daughter. I'd like to make amends for my part in all that. Perhaps I'm wrong to think a memoir might help. You jeered when I spoke at my trial. You sent me to jail for my unnatural hubris, and now I'm responding with this. But I write to you from the recreational center, where my turn at the computers is short. Could Nemesis have announced herself any more clearly? I'm obviously fallen. At the computer to my left is a Latin teacher who ran a child pornography ring. On my right, an infamous pyramid schemer, one of the many aged amongst us. He's playing his 34th round of Tetris. All the creaky computers are taken. There are only six of them and scores of impatient criminals, crooked bankers, pornographers, and one very humble Stephen Archen. That's the inventor. All right, so now we'll just read a little bit from Carl Detman, whose work is based on that of Joseph Weizenbaum, and he's in an argument with his wife. So his wife wants him to give the computer memory, and he thinks that the computer shouldn't get memory, that she doesn't deserve memory, that she's not human enough to get that. So they're having a fight. I'm back. I tried to stay away, but I couldn't. I even made myself a bed on the couch, but every time a car drove past, floating me in watery light, I was lonelier than ever again. And so, here I am, 
Even this is better, looking down at you while you sleep, or while you pretend to sleep in order to avoid me. I'll just take a seat in the armchair and watch you for a bit. I shouldn't have left in such a fit. I'm not my usual self at the moment. The silence is slowly driving me crazy. Ever since you discovered my talking computer, you save your conversation for her. Have you considered how this might affect me? Coming home to such ringing silence? It's like coming home to packed bags. I can feel you leaving me. You're abandoning me for my talking computer. Our talking computer. Mary. You named her after that pilgrim girl whose diaries you're editing. Instead of a child, we conceived a chatty machine, and then you stopped talking to me. Only at night do I know we're still married. When I climb into our bed, which we've shared for more than two decades, when I take into account the round of your shoulder, the rough, wrinkled skin on your elbows, the heat cupped at the back of your knee. Through these months of estrangement, I've held tight to such moments. Even when you asked me to give the program long-term memory so that Mary could record your conversations. Even when I refused and you looked at me with the small black beads of your eyes, reducing me to the size of a thimble. All right. <laughs> Good job. Thanks. <laughs> so, um, before we begin, I just wanted to say that I have done a lot of book events in my life, um, and this is the one I'm the most excited about because it's not often that you get to do. I'm about to cry. <laughs> she just had a baby. <laughs> That's not why. <laughs> break into tears. Um, it's not often you get to do a book event with your best friend. And um, as Cecil alluded to, uh, Louise and I do not know each other from writing. We know each other from playing squash. I was a coach at a camp when Louisa was eight years old. I was only 14, and she was like the best eight-year-old squash player ever. And we spent a lot of our adult life playing squash. We were on the national women's squash team together for 10 years. And we went to a lot of exciting places like Stuttgart and Sheffield and Medellin and El Edmonton. Salvador. Edmonton. Oh, that was the best. Yeah, Edmonton broke us. And, um, we and both actually, quit after Edmonton. That we both quit after Edmonton. And the reason I'm actually going to bring up Edmonton was um, while we were there, we both realized we'd been playing squash for too long. And it wasn't fun anymore. But we really enjoyed spending a lot of time together and we kept cooking up this plan for something we could do where we could travel the world together and still hang out. And this is it. And here we are. <laughs> we, both, we both wrote novels. They both came out by the same imprint at uh, Echo, which is crazy. And um, I think we're going to get to do this a lot more in the future, but I just wanted to say this is like the coolest event ever. Um, so that's a little bit of why we're doing this together. Um, not just, you know, oh, they both played squash. Go stick them up on stage. So I have I have to say, um, my, I'm going to ask a lot of really important questions. <laughs> when you first told me you were writing a book about artificial intelligence, I was surprised, and I don't think I was alone in that. Um, I think of you as a poet and a scholar of literature and the person I hated playing the most. Um, so this seemed like a real departure. Um, but when I read uh, Speak, somehow it all made sense to me um, that this is what you would write. Um, it's a book about language and the power of words and writing, and to a certain degree about, degree about isolation and anxiety, all of which are things I know you think about. So I'm wondering what came first, the idea to write about artificial intelligence or the uh, themes that which allowed you to explore AI? I think it was really it was the ideas behind the book that came first. So 
even in my first book and my whole life, as you know well, I've been interested in sort of the feeling of standing outside everybody else and um, existing a little bit at the peripheries and how you deal with an existence like that. Um, So as I was researching just on my own some of the history of artificial intelligence, I was amazed and um, kind of intrigued by the idea that all of these characters who have been so instrumental in... um, you know, bringing artificial intelligence into existence, were kind of standing at the outside of humanity, and at some point in their lives, their intelligence or their humanity had come into question. So Alan Turing, who was gay and who spent his whole life sort of dreaming of a machine that would be more humane than a real human being, um, and all of the women who were first involved with um, programming the earliest computers, who um, whose work went completely unrecognized because they were women and the refugees from Nazi Germany who were also integral to the earliest stages of artificial intelligence who had equally been told that their humanity or their intelligence wasn't quite right. Um, so it was that question of kind of existing a little bit on the outside of everybody else in the human world um, that, that brought me to the subject. Well, it's funny because you kind of jumped jump the gun to my final zinger of a wrap-up <laughs> question, so we'll have to go there now. Um, you know, I remember, and not to, you know, I, I thought that I'd like bring up the squash stuff so people didn't, you know, Know, ask a lot of questions about that, but um, I remember when we were playing, you um, really, we both were kind of isolated and didn't, we were really good, but like didn't really enjoy the social aspect of the game and mm-hmm. probably would have done, you know, had a better career had we been sort of part of everything and but we had a lot of qualms about playing and really wanted to do something else which I guess was the profitable enterprise <laughs> of writing literary fiction <laughs> that's great our parents must be thrilled um, but I remember that you used to you know we both had this sensation all the time and you um, put a name to it and it's funny I just used it in the book that I'm writing now but then when I was writing these questions I was like oh man that's what Louisa wrote about you used to describe that this thing called the hollow feeling about like being in with, around all these people, but being very isolated. And when I read Speak, I was like, oh, she just really wrote about that sort of being, um, you know, apart from the apart from the crowd. And I guess you answered my question of whether that was intentional. But, like, I feel like that was a, was that a personal investment of your own experience? Yeah, we used to talk all the time. We would stay in hotel rooms. We would, you know, spend a lot of time in airports and then show up in a hotel room and then go back to the airport and then go to another hotel room. And we would talk about that hollow hotel feeling, um, which I feel like most people probably have had, where you're kind of, like, skating a little bit on the surface of actually being alive. Um, well, that's really what your book <laughs> sort of, you know, it really nails that sort of... The, the surface of being alive. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's something that we grew up with and that I've always been really interested in. And the idea of telling a story kind of circling around it with all these voices that are just starting to dig in was appealing to me for that reason. Okay. Let's move away from the the sports part of this program. So, um, you know, I'm really drawn to multi-perspective novels. They're my favorite to read and I guess to write too. You know, I love them. Um, They have their challenges and, uh, you know, um, did you um, enjoy switching voices in the story, or would sometimes would you be like, oh, "I'm so glad I'm done with Carl Detlin and can move <laughs> over to you know to Alan Turing today"? Or were you like happily with happy with all of them? Yeah, the it's time? such an interesting question, and I should ask you about it afterwards. Ivy's book, Visitation Street, which is phenomenal, and all of you guys should read it if you haven't. Um, oh, great! Yeah. <laughs> 
um, is also written in rotating perspectives. Um, but for me, the thing, and I don't know if this is the same for you, the thing that's most interesting about that is that you can see each character from other characters' perspectives. So what one character doesn't know about himself or herself, another character might. And sort of all the mistakes we make about ourselves, all the ways that we sell ourselves short, that can be kind of corrected and understood by other characters. So that kind of like circling knowledge is interesting for me for that reason. Huh, I never really thought about it that way. Um, perhaps I should. <laughs> it seems like really, really apparent. But um, what, drew, what drew you to that? I, you know, I started writing my book in grad school and I had no idea what I was doing. And, you know, so I would get to the end of, you know, when it was time to submit 30 pages and I was like, well, I don't know what the next 30 pages are going to be. Let's invent a new character and write about that person. And then, oh, next month. That's how it started. Yeah. And then I realized having different perspectives is a really great way to look at a a, um, neighborhood, you know, yeah. my book's about a neighborhood, and you get different perspective. It's like, sort of like artificial intelligence is to speak as Red Hook is to Visitation Street. It's like you get a total panorama by these different voices. Yeah. Um, though it can be really frustrating, I think, because sometimes it's hard to tie it all together, and some people are, you know, doing better than others, and you feel like you're treating them. Do you feel that way? Like, like you're honoring some of the characters more? Yeah, I was really strict about switching each day. So on one day I would write one character's oh. voice, and on the next day I would write another character's voice. Um, and for me it was exciting so I would sort of come to the end of what I had to say about Carl and then I got to move on to Ruth Um, and so I I could keep going in that way oh that's interesting wow Um, so it was always fresh yeah, it kind of kept the characters fresh. It also kept them kind of related to each other. So what I had been thinking about on Tuesday when I was writing Carl was still kind of fresh in my mind when I was writing Alan Turing on Wednesday. How did you go about writing yours? You know, I have the stupid... My editor was like, why are all your chapters 30 pages? <laughs> <laughs> because I was writing it in grad school, and when I had written 30 pages of one character, I was like, Try to write 30 pages of the next character. I did change it, ultimately. I mean, it was just like a formulaic exercise. Yeah. You know, I guess it's the same thing. You yeah. know, I would write 30 pages in one voice, 30 pages in another voice. You know, yeah. But I did have this thing in an earlier draft, which was like, all the characters had to appear all the time. You're like, oh, here comes like so-and-so. <laughs> and then, like, oh, he passes so-and-so in the street. It's like this puppet show of all the characters. And yeah. I realized they could sort of stand on their own more than that. Yeah. Um, but you do you do a lot of like callbacks in your book, sort of like um, you know. There's themes like the Nautilus comes through, and some like I felt like there's a lot of references to T. S. Eliot. Though I'm not the best poetry scholar, <laughs> but I found like a few little like p- plays on words. So yeah. you really wound those through the decades. Of the, Louise's book spans uh, how many years? Well, 1760 to 2040. So someone do the math. I mean, it's like <laughs> 300 and something. Um, so you, the, those sort of talismans that run through your book are a really kind of nifty way to tie the disparate voices together. Yeah, I didn't want it to be like weird coincidences that drew the characters together, like that I was sort of toying with their fates and drawing them all together for random reasons. Um, I just wanted them to be thinking about similar things and to be in conversation with one another. So a lot of them like shells and this Nautilus comes <laughs> in and a lot of them are thinking about math they're involved in artificial intelligence and so they're thinking about patterns of numbers and um, I just wanted them to be in conversation with one another rather than f- sort of forced into interaction with one another so that's how I organized it oh, it's, yeah it's funny you would use the word interaction with one another because this is a book uniquely specifically about people who do not interact with one another yeah. you know they sort of interact more with these like voices in the past yeah um, so 
you know, today we've been talking a lot about genre and different <laughs> genres, um, specifically which genres make a lot more money than literary fiction and how do we get into that field. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, one of the things I think is interesting about Speak is some people are calling it science fiction. And that would never have occurred to me. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I think with a lot of people here, you know, we talk about this, you know, what is genre and, you know, is it important? Is it fluid? And I was wondering, you know, what your thoughts are on that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, do you, cons I know in England they're marketing your book as science fiction. Mm -hmm. And uh, was that a shock to you? It was a little bit, I hadn't been expecting it. Um, but there's, I mean, there's some dystopia and there are some computers and some robots. And so it doesn't like, you know, it doesn't come out of left field, I guess. But, um, and the question of genre is interesting to me. I come from studying poetry, so I, I think of genre as being kind of forms, um, and I love to think about forms. And when I wrote um, when I wrote Speak, I was very much thinking about the shape of it. So it was going to be five different characters and five different books, and the whole book was driven by its shape and its form. So I, I think the genre is really important to me. I wasn't necessarily thinking about science fiction as a genre, but I was thinking about shape and the components of shape in making a book. Just out of curiosity. This is also something I worry about all the time because, you know, I wrote a book that was marketed as a mystery, which it's not really a mystery. And, you know, I'd go to all these panels. And they'd be like, well, the, when the, the criminal and the murdered girl, I'm like, I, I don't know who you're talking to, but I'm going to try to answer this as best as I can. Like, but um, do you worry that, you know, people are going to read your book and just kind of think, well, that's not science fiction? Or does that not bother you? Um, I... S for some reason, it doesn't bother me, although now specters of, like, infuriating science fiction fans are starting to rise before my eyes. <laughs> I don't mean to be rude about that. I just mean, it's, you know, it's something that's like in the literary conversation a lot today, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. And I, I should ask you the same. So Ivy has this like incredible character-driven urban novel about a neighborhood, and it's often marketed as crime fiction or yeah, something like that. Yeah, it's confusing to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I feel like a lot of people who love crime fiction have loved your novel because characters are speak to people across genres, and characters speak to people no matter what their interests are. So I think if your primary interest is in creating interesting characters with voice that feels real, then probably, I mean, ideally you wouldn't disappoint any genre. I hope not. You know, it's worrisome. It's worrisome that people are constantly being pigeonholed for some like weird marketing yeah. um, business. Um, though whatever sells your book is basically <laughs> fine by me. And if people hate it, they can just write crappy Goodreads reviews about how like, this wasn't science fiction. <laughs> it was set in the past. <laughs> set in the Puritan times. <laughs> There have been one or two of those already. Yeah. Oh, really? So, yeah. I didn't know. I didn't read your Goodreads reviews. I once did a panel where a guy just like read all of his one-star Amazon reviews and pretended that he was like okay with them, but he really wasn't. Um, so I guess something that also interested me about our parallel career paths and lives and other things is that we both are... This is these novels that we're primarily discussing here are our second novels. And we are both the author of first novels that I think we both do not entirely, or not entirely happy with or thrilled by. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they were, le they didn't really set the world on fire for various reasons and not because of any lack of good writing or marketing. It just, they didn't, I don't think they really, I don't think I'm lying or offending you when I say they didn't just 
yeah. work. And I, it, I, for me, it was really sort of hard to get back on that horse and just still believe that it was going to work. But I did that. I was going to write a better book. Um, and it seems like you just took a totally wildly. Louisa's first novel is a, a mod, to be pat about it, like a modernized of Jane Austen's persuasion, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a family it's a family story set in suburban Philadelphia, and it has really like it's could not be any different than Speak. And my first novel is a novel about a magician who makes things really disappear and it's really weird and <laughs> bizarre and you know how aware were you of your issues with your first novel when you set out to write speak well I definitely was trying to write a different novel but also that was because I, I started writing speak before the carriage house had come out so I wasn't reacting to kind of the lukewarm reception for the carriage house when I started writing speak but I was trying to just do something different like I wanted to be intrigued by the process of it and kind of enchanted by this new form that I was wrapping my head around. So in some ways I was lucky that I started before the other book even came out. So I could just do it out of my own interest and not out of a reaction to the reception. I did the same thing, you know, um, but I sort of, I remember when you were talking, when you're, book was coming out, you were sort of, and I felt the exact same way and I could totally relate. Like you could see the inherent flaws in it, you know? And not that it's bad or that there's anything terrible about it. I mean, there's certainly way worse books out there. The book is actually really good. It's just, you know, I don't mean to say it's bad. It's just like, it's not... (laughs) I remember that you were slightly unhappy with certain aspects of it. And did you, like, really try to work through that, those shortcomings in this this novel? Or were you just moved... Just put it behind you. Well, I think I very much felt like I was still on this sort of upward curve of learning about how to write a novel when I started writing the second one. And I I mean, I still feel that way now. I came to writing novels maybe later than a lot of people come to writing novels. And I imagine Ivy did too, just because we were so occupied in this other career of playing squash. So... um, you know, having sort of started a little bit late, I felt like I was learning really hard. Yeah. <laughs> and that I could hands continue on. learning really yeah. hard and hands-on for the second one. Did you feel that I way? I feel exactly you? the same way. I felt like I was writing my way into knowledge yeah. of how to write. I actually like, was like, I need, to go, I need to go to school and learn how to do this, you know? Yeah. Like, there's, like, really big problems with my writing, and I'm aware of that. Um, though I, I love my first book, and I'm so glad I wrote it, because it feels mm-hmm. like a perfect record of the person I was when yeah. I wrote it, and, like, the stage in my life, it's like being able to look into my brain when I was like 27 you probably <laughs> most people don't want to do but <laughs> but I, I love that aspect of it but I also like I felt like when Visitation Street was coming out there was this huge sort of push to like sweep that first book under the rug like they never <laughs> talk about it and sort of like you know I mean I would like oh I got like nominated for a first novel prize that I'd say well you know it's not really my first novel <laughs> I mean, the front, the first line of the Boston Globe review was like, "How did she write this amazing first novel?" I'm like, well, it's not, you know, I, I, the hard way. So, you know, I think it's, you know, I feel that there is this sort of temptation to sort of discount those earlier attempts, but I think they're also really important to like how you. I'm, I'm so glad I did it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think for me, having come from a sort of, you know, athletic background, I didn't have much of a background in writing, um, it gave me permission to think of myself as a writer, and then based on that, I was able to much more seriously engage with the next novel, so because I thought of myself as a writer, I could really be ambitious and kind of study the form of all these different kinds of writing and um, really try to do the sort of most ambitious possible novel that I could do. So. That's exactly how I thought about it. I yeah. thought, you know, I want to just like t- take a big swing and take a bite, yeah. take a bite out of life. <laughs> no, but I, you know, I thought, 
well, I really, if I never get to write another book, I want to write the book that, you know, just give it one, like, write everything into this one book. Because yeah. I don't think you get a third chance. Yeah. <laughs> that was one of those, seemed to be the case. <laughs> um, should we take some questions? Yeah. Yeah. So the way that I started writing the novel was um, I actually sort of picked up this algorithm based on, um, you know what the Sestina is? It's a form of poem that has, um, each stanza has six lines and uh, has kind of an alternating pattern for what the final word of each line will be. So I took that kind of alternating numerical pattern and wrote five books with alternating voices according to that pattern. So the idea was kind of to write it the way a computer would write a book, like according to an algorithm. And then I got to the end and was like, wait, I'm human. <laughs> and I can change this pattern. So then I went back through and kind of um, you know, built the story by moving some of the pieces around a little bit. But that shape, that kind of alternating one, two, three, four, five, five, two, one, three, four, whatever it is, um, was really important to me in writing it. Um, and then, you know, with my first novel, similarly, I kind of had the idea of the shape of it before I started writing. Um, so that is kind of like what drew, drew me through, not an idea of where the characters would go or how the story would end up, um, which is, I guess, what I mean by shape. Do you have a, a similar... Yeah, it's not, it's less sort of uh, rigid, but I have, it's more of a feeling, you mm-hmm. know. It's sort of, you know... Um, where I want things to sort of collapse towards the end or explode in the middle. Um, I do sort of, I do like to alternate things, um, you know, in some kind of pattern, but I think at the end it does all fall away because if it's too rigid, yeah. it just seems, the same thing like with the 30 page chapters, like why, are, you know, if you are human and you can't sort of, unless you're writing a really, really technical novel, yeah. like that doesn't quite work. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> So, um, I was thinking when you were talking about writing from the voice of Alan Turing, I was thinking about the, you know, Theory of Everything movie that came out, and so my question was, like, kind of what is it like to write a fictional character that is something that other people have written that same fictional character from yeah. that same person? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes good sense. So there is a movie that came out about Alan Turing, um, recently, um, I, I had actually written the book before the movie came out, before I had a chance to see it. And But what I was kind of working with was nonfiction about Alan Turing, so there wasn't much fiction about Turing, but there were lots of nonfiction versions of him. So the question I had to ask was, why not just write another nonfiction? Why, why fictionalize a character who actually existed? Um, and so for me, what that was was trying to inhabit a voice. So I wasn't trying to replicate what actually happened in his life, but try, if I could, to inhabit a voice that I imagined that he might have. So it was a question of voice more than biography. And then when the movie came out, you know, I didn't see it. (laughs) But I think you made a really interesting choice that sort of, um, sort of, I guess was what I thought was a smart choice was that you wrote about a very limited part of mm-hmm. in the Alan Turing chapters Alan Turing is writing to the um, mother of the guy he's sort of in love with in boarding school so it's this very like f- like finite slice of his life mm-hmm. we're not going into huge biographical detail it's sort of just yeah. like his emotions 
directed towards this woman. Yeah. And the letters directed towards this woman about her son. So you kind of sidestep that, am I getting Alan Turing right? Yeah. You know, it's just his voice and just these letters. Yeah. And I think that was a really smart decision. Um, Thank you. I always find it odd. You know, it, it's really hard to sometimes I, I write a book where everyone's imagined and then there's just like one real person like floating yeah. around in there and you did a really good job of balancing that um, so congratulations <laughs> <laughs> Maura did you have a question? Oh yeah I kind of followed up with that I was curious about the research element of your book and sort of how you integrated doing research on AI and algorithms and yeah. niche subjects with the process of like creatively conquering yeah, so similarly, it was kind of this balance between I could just explain the history of AI, which is what the book is largely concerned with, or I could try to sort of focus on very limited small parts of that history and bring them to life with voice, which is really what my main concern in writing the book. Um, and in terms of the research, I did do a lot of reading of biographies, a lot of Turing biographies. Um, Carl Detman is based on a real character, Joseph Weizenbaum. Or his life isn't based on Joseph Weizenbaum's, but his work is, and then his reaction to the work. Um, so I read you know, all, everything that Joseph Weizenbaum has written. I chatted with a lot of chatbots, like way beyond when I needed to stop chatting with chatbots. <laughs> um, and yeah, just like try to collect as much information as possible and then focus, like Ivy was saying, on like really narrow aspects of that so that I could feel free to bring them to life instead of feeling like I needed to replicate things. Your research, um, so you talked about being really regimented about how you wrote mm-hmm. each day and starting the character. And with your research, I know um, for a lot of writers, it's really easy to get down the rabbit hole with the research and get really excited about things. Did you give yourself um, structure around that as well? Yeah. And did you do it all before you started or in between? I did it mostly as I was writing, which I think for me worked really well. So I kind of got some momentum of writing these voices going and then kept researching as I was going so I could integrate what I was researching as I was writing. So that kind of prevented me from doing the, like three years of learning everything about Turing and then being like, whoa, 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 I have to spend seven years on Joseph Weizenbaum and like never writing the book. Um, so kind of doing them simultaneously was really helpful for me. But I don't know, like Ivy's book is intensely grounded in one neighborhood and it would have been easy to go down a road of just figuring out everything about the neighborhood before writing. Well, I mean, I live there, so, you know... It- is largely based on my experience, and I can't do research. I'm really bad at it. Um, you know, I went to the Brooklyn Historical Society and looked at a whole bunch of pictures of Red Hook, and then honestly, I spent the entire time looking at a picture of this one bar that I went into all the time. And I was like, well, that's what I'm drawn to. I'm just going to write about that. Yeah. Research and I, I'm not like that academically inclined. <laughs> not great. It's true, though. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely feel as though I'm kind of using rhythm as I'm writing voices a lot. Sometimes I find myself slipping into writing them all in iambic (laughs) rhythm, which is not right. You know, people don't really talk iambically. But um, I do, you know, I I say every line that as I'm writing out loud and I'm kind of listening for how the beats fall. So I think poetry affects affects that. Um, And then I think also just, you know, the poetry that I read ends up, 
dumping into the books that I'm writing as well. So there's like T.S. Eliot is kind of quoted throughout it and um, a lot of the poetry in the 17th century that I was studying ends up coming in in various forms throughout. There's Milton in there. Um, So just using those poems that I love as kind of little reference points throughout is influential for me as well. So are you actively writing poetry now or are you... uh are you kind of more in just like pure fiction writer mode? I've been in pure fiction writer mode for a little while now, but sometimes I think I should go back to writing some poetry to sharpen those muscles a little bit. Um, but it, it did feel like, I mean, like what we were saying before, kind of coming late to writing and having so much to learn. Now that I've switched to writing fiction, it feels like I should be dedicating every hour to figuring everything out instead of wasting my time writing poetry. (laughs) (laughs) But you also studied poetry for a PhD, so, you know, there's that aspect was really prevalent in your life. Any more questions? Yeah, Katie. (laughs) (laughs) No worries. So, since Ivy, you were saying that it was, like, you were, like, mildly surprised that she's writing a book about artificial intelligence. Yeah. I was wondering what your, like, personal history of your interest in yeah. I, I mean, I was really interested. I thought I wanted to be a psychiatrist or study neurology for a while, and I finished my pre-meds and that I was going to go down that path. So I've always been kind of interested in stories about how the brain is built and the chemicals of emotion and the mechanics of emotion. So as a kind of side effect of that, I've always been interested in how you build artificial brains. Um, so the research started that way, and then I got involved in all the characters and kind of went down that rabbit hole. Could you both talk about, um, you, you, you seem to be expert in pushing parts of your life away. How does your job and the rest of your life feed your writing? How do you look on your writing? Do you see it as a reward or as a discipline? Or, or how do you find the rhythm to enter your writing? And do you feel it's prescriptive in any way? Well, I don't have a job outside of writing. I mean, that's what I do. I, I do some freelance editing, but, you know, that sort of, that informs it. But I just, you know, I kind of center my day around it. And if possible, you know, life, I have to imagine that and be fair enough to admit that life gets in the way more often than it doesn't. And not to, you know, beat myself up about that. But, you know, at a certain point as I've progressed and gotten older as a writer, things do fall away. And, like, you have to let them go. You know, there's things that I can no longer be involved with because writing takes up so much emotional time. Um, But that said, I just, you have to, you can't, at least for me, I can't, like, put blinders on to the, you know, the calling of the real world and those everyday you know, things that have to be taken care of. I'm not one of those writers who's like, I always talk about this, of like, I read an interview with Jennifer Egan, and she was like, when I finally had the, you know, idea for Visit from the Goon Squad, I wrote for like 10 hours, and then like, I forgot to pick my kid up from school. I'm like, that's not true. <laughs> or if it is, you're crazy. And uh, you maybe should, you know, go see someone about that problem. But um, I just, you know, it, it's part of my life and it's the most important part on some days and then other times it just can't be yeah Ivy has a baby so for that reason it's like you know that is an even more kind of pressing concern for her I don't and so I have like I could probably write for 10 hours and I wouldn't be forgetting to pick anybody up at school Um, but I think 
you know, life does get in the way, and I imagine if I were to have a baby, I would probably stop writing to go pick them up at school as well. I have been teaching, so throughout writing this book and my first one, I was teaching as well, and finishing my PhD and writing a dissertation, so there were a lot of other things at the same time. And for me, it actually sort of helps. Like, I wrote in a contained amount of time. I loved it. It was my treat that I got to do before I went off and did the other kinds of work that I did. Um, so it's harder to have the whole day free to write. In some ways, it's like Little. unlimited <laughs> writing time can be kind of frustrating, so just having two hours and getting to do it and having it be a luxury um, you know, kept me moving kind of quickly. And you made a decision not to have kids in terms of... Oh. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I don't know that that's over necessarily. <laughs> I was raised that women and women statistically have no children. It's that it's almost a guarantee almost statistically of success. I was reading this recently. Oh my god! I guess I should just give up now, Liz. You're done. Um, I don't think I haven't like decided that I don't want to have kids so that I can be a writer. Um, I'd like to have kids one day. (laughs) You should probably put aside that writing career. But I think actually there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of writers, it's a big part of the dialogue of writing, especially yeah. female writers, is yeah. how you balance that with kids. And yeah. I think it actually is a job that you can do very well with kids. And, um, you know, there is a huge dialogue going on about, you know, what, what the checks and balances of parenthood and writing are. And in fact, there are organizations dedicated to discussing yeah. that and, you know, promoting the fact of parenting and writing as symbiotic. Yeah. Um, and people often talk about, though, this is not, when you have children, you'll hear this a lot. <laughs> people are like, oh my God, you must be so much more creative. Your brain is in this new place when you have a kid. And, you know, people do, it's <laughs> a little more crazy, but people do say that. Um, I have not yet experienced that, but, like, I've been told enough times that, you know, so yeah. there's that to look forward to. And there are great, <laughs> I know, one day, I'm sweating. Um, <laughs> One day, um, or a lot of the female writers that I most admire have, you know, one or two or three kids, and I do think it's very possible to do both, although challenging, I'm sure. Ask Shirley Jackson. She had a whole brood of them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, she's... Okay, um, I wanted to one more time say how exciting it was to sit here and talk to you. Thank and you so much for doing this. Ivy yeah. has been my best friend forever, and it's <laughs> such a thrill to be. I've been copying her since I was a little kid. Like, she would get an acid green coat with fur in the hood, and I would be like, Louisa, you're What's 25 when you did that. <laughs> is to get the same coat. But then also, like, you know, she got those shoes, and I was like, those are nice. And then Louisa called me, she's like, guess who's publishing my book? I was like, oh my god. How did you pull that off? Okay, thank you so much for coming out. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.